using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page two. Please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for this word. Now we pray for your spirit to accompany the preaching of it, that the preached word might minister to each and every one of us, especially for those of us who are in the pursuit of marriage or are married. May your truth about this precious institution. May it encourage us. May it give us hope. May it continue to give us clarity and direction for how we ought to live our lives. Lord, we pray all of this for your glory and our good, and all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, if you have been with us since the start of the year, you know we are walking through the book of Genesis through chapters 1 through 11. Some of you may feel like we've been crawling through this book since we're still just out of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. But we are studying this book together. It's so important to do so because it is truly about the beginnings of everything. Genesis is about origins. It sheds so much light on God's original design for life on earth, and most relevant to us, it sheds light on human life and human relationships. And today we're going to be considering Genesis chapter 2 and what it reveals about the most intimate and most profound of all human relationships, that is the marriage relationship between husband and wife. Without Genesis 2, we would be lost when it comes to marriage. I mean, just imagine if, trying, if you were to try to put together a thousand-piece puzzle without having the box in front of you, without the advantage of having that picture on the front of the box. Where would you even start? 
You, you, wouldn't, you don't even know what the finished product is supposed to look like, so you would be lost. You'd, you'd just be staring at, at a mess of jumbled pieces on, on, on the table or on the floor. And I think that's how many people feel about marriage. Either their marriages have fallen apart and, and feel like, like scattered pieces all over the floor, or they've seen their parents' marriage result in the same thing. Broken, jumbled, in a complete mess. So many people today look at marriage and they feel lost. They, they don't even know what to do with it. They don't even know what it's supposed to look like, which probably explains why many people in our day have delayed getting married or have abandoned the idea altogether. Substituting marriage with cohabitation or intentional singleness. Studies have shown that in our country, marriage rates have steadily decreased in the last 60 years. According to Pew Research, the median age for first marriage is now 30 for men and 28 for women. And the share of adults who have cohabited, that is, they, they have lived with an unmarried partner, the share of adults who have cohabited has now surpassed the percentage of those who have ever been married. And the so the trend is that less people these days are married and less even want to get married. Now, friends, I'm not here to, to, to wag a finger at anyone. I don't think it's helpful for, for preachers to stand here in a pulpit and to complain about the culture, to complain about the state of things. No, no I'm not here to wag a finger. But I, I am here to point a finger at a great opportunity before us, at a unique mission for such a time as this. Church, in a marriage-stricken culture like ours, where more and more people are unfamiliar with marriage and what a healthy one looks like, this is the time for us to hold up the box. To hold up the box and to show them the picture on the cover. And that, my friends, is what Genesis 2 is. It's the picture on the cover. This text provides us a picture of marriage as God originally intended. And not only is it important for us to preach a message like this from the pulpit, really we need to live out this message in our own lives, in our own marriages. We need Christians to get married and to stay married for the right reasons. We have this amazing opportunity before us to provide our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors a compelling picture of marriage, to model not, not perfect marriages. We're not here to model perfect marriages since none of us will ever obtain to one of those. But we are to model healthy marriages. And a healthy marriage is a marriage that strives to resemble the picture on the box. So friends, that's why we're going to study this morning, Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. I just have three simple points for us as we consider this text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll, you'll see an outline with those three points listed before you. First, we're going to consider man's not good position. Second, we'll see God's good provision. And third, we'll do some reflection on marriage's good purposes. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by considering man's not good position. 
This is emphasized for us here in verse 18. But before we go there, let's review all that has um, happened before chapter 2, verse 18. Now, we we saw when we looked at chapter 1, a a high-level account of creation where God made all things in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, in Genesis 2, we don't have a, a rival or contradictory creation account. Instead, we have a more focused one, one that's zoomed in on day six and particularly to the creation of mankind. Now, now you have this one creature called mankind on, made on earth, made in God's own image. And so back in verse seven of chapter two, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The creature was called Adam, which is one of the Hebrew words for man. He comes from the ground, we're told, and the word for ground in Hebrew is Adamah. So you can see there's an intentional word play here. Adam comes from Adamah. So his name is named in relation to the ground as a reminder that though we are made in God's image, we are not God. We are not the creator. We are his creatures. We are creatures of the earth. We come from the ground. So here, in the beginning of Genesis 2, Adam is the first man. And up to this point, he's the only man. Now, we're told in Genesis 1 that at the close of every single day, God would survey all that he made that day, and he would declare it to be good. It was good. It was very good, which then makes Genesis 2, verse 18, such a jarring verse, because here, for the first time, God calls something not good. Let me read verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the story of mankind begins with a lack, with something not good. Now, friends, this is not a moral judgment. It doesn't mean that something bad has now entered into creation. That doesn't happen actually until the next chapter, in chapter 3. But it does mean that at this point, something is missing. Something is incomplete. Man alone is alone. Up to this point, everything God has created has a corresponding pair. The heaven, heaven has the celestial bodies to complete it. The sky has the birds. The seas have fishes. The earth has land animals. But man, so far, lacks a corresponding pair. He is alone. Even God, being one, is not alone. He enjoys a triune existence. There is perfect, eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God has never been alone. But man, at this point, is alone, and that is not good. So God says he will make a helper fit for him. Now that word fit means another creature that pairs well with him, that corresponds to him, a creature that complements him, one 
who is his equal. And friends, I do want to stress the word equal. This corresponding pair will be Adam's equal. And I, I, I stress that because I think it's very easy to miss that because we get tripped up by that word helper. You see, in our common parlance, helper can carry the connotation of someone inferior to or subservient to the one who is being helped. But friends, in Scripture, that is completely not the case. Out of the 19 instances of this word in the Old Testament, the word is used 16 times in references to God. God is our help. He is our helper. So when we read the word helper, we assume it means the woman lacks something. But in the Bible, it means that she contributes something. She contributes something unique to the marriage, something that the, uh, that the husband actually lacks without her. A husband and a wife have distinct but complementary contributions to the marriage, which makes them equal and fit for each other. So, friends, we need to make sure to let Scripture define itself. And, and let's not read definitions into biblical terms, but allow the Bible to interpret its own terms. And according to Scripture, a helper is not a, subsub, a subservient role. It's honestly a God-like role, for God is a helper. Now, let's think about some of the implications here. Think about how profound it is for Adam to be described here as being alone, even while he enjoyed perfect communion with God, unencumbered by sin. Because this is all happening before the fall, before Genesis 3, before the uh, sin cursed the world. So he walked and talked with God in perfect fellowship, and yet, and yet in a profound sense, he was alone. Now, now that in no way should suggest that God is not enough, that God is unable to satisfy the human soul. Now, there are countless passages that we could turn to that declares the Lord God to be all-satisfying and all-sufficient, more than enough for us. So we shouldn't go to that conclusion. But what verse 18 is suggesting is that we were uniquely created for human companionship. No man is an island entire of himself. No human being will thrive in isolation. And that's why solitary confinement is used to, to break the human mind because we were not meant to be alone. We were made for human companionship, for human community. To be utterly alone is a not good position to be in. And I think the experience of many during this pandemic has truly confirmed this biblical truth. The forced isolation that many had to endure, especially those who, had to, who, who live alone, that experience was almost unbearable. It, it just reminds us how much we are wired for community. No matter how much of an introvert you think you are and how much you enjoy your alone time, in the end, no one will thrive in isolation. 
And that's why it's so important for us to be a church community that truly welcomes and, and draws others out of their isolation, out of their not good position, into an inclusive community where we can thrive together, where we can be a people created in the image of a triune communal God. God in his nature is community. And we as his church are to be community and continue drawing others in. Now, in God's providence, in his providence, a good majority of people, he additionally calls not just into this kind of community, but he calls into a particular form of community, an exclusive one that we call marriage. Not everyone is called to marry. Jesus was not called to marry. The Apostle Paul was not called to marry. So marriage is not the only way to address the human condition of aloneness, but it clearly is one way. And you can even make the argument that it is the normative way. But the point is that according to verse 18, one reason marriage was designed and instituted by God was to address the human sense of aloneness, to meet that desire for human companionship that all of us have. Now, friends, I don't imagine this to be a revolutionary thought for any of you. You probably just assume this to be true, that, that, that people get married because they long for human companionship, a life partner, a best friend, someone to grow old with. I, I, I just want to point out that the Bible affirms that, that that's a reason. It's not the only one, but it still is a valid biblical reason to want to get married. You want companionship. And that's why, that's why it's important if you and your significant other are considering marriage for you to really take time to evaluate the state of your relationship. Get some counseling. Seek wise advice from others. Let them speak into your relationship to determine how well you truly fit with each other. Do you complement one another? Do you actually enjoy each other's company? If marriage is for companionship, then it is important to make sure that you're a good match before you take that next step to making a lifelong commitment with one another. So, friends, that's man's not good position. That's the position that he has been in up to verse 18. He's alone. Well, now let's consider our, our next point, God's good provision. Just as the Lord always does, he fills the lack. He provides for the need. Now, what he does to provide initially is a bit confusing, both for us and for Adam, because he essentially takes him to the zoo. The Lord parades a bunch of animals before Adam to see what he would name them. Now, there are two purposes in doing that. First, Adam is beginning to exercise the dominion that he was given over all of creation. You see, by naming each of the animals, he is demonstrating his authority over the animals. But second, and more importantly, the point of parading all the animals is to show Adam that none of them are fit for him. 
God goes through the trouble of showing Adam all the animals, even though he knows there's not a single one fit for him, so that Adam will come to recognize and respect the uniqueness and the wonder of woman. Look back with me at the end of uh, verse 20. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, putting Adam to sleep is important because God's about to perform surgery. But the reason is more than just medical. It's theological. Putting him to sleep is not merely an anesthetic. It's a declaration of God's initiative to provide for man. I mean, just think of how God put Abraham to sleep before establishing a covenant with him and, and his offspring. That, in, in, in Abraham's story, was to highlight the sovereign grace of God in establishing the old covenant. Sovereign grace is likewise here on display in his provision of a helper fit for Adam. Adam did not contribute a thing. This is God and his doing alone. Now notice how God takes one of his ribs, and in verse 22, we're told, that, we're told what he does with that rib. And the rib that the Lord God had, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's an important observation to note that the woman, who is later named Eve, is not made from the ground like Adam and all the other living creatures. If you look in verse 19, we're told that out of the ground, out of the ground, God created all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. And of course, we were told earlier, Adam was made out of the ground. So why is Eve created differently? Why is she made from Adam's side? It, it, it's too easy for someone to th- therefore assume that Eve is dependent on Adam, that she's, she's subservient to him, helpless without him. Why didn't God just create her from the dust of the ground like Adam and every other creature? Wouldn't that have been a better way to communicate their equality? It's a good question. But if you think about it, creating Eve from Adam was actually the best way to convey their equal worth in nature. To be created from Adam's rib and not from the ground like all the other creatures makes it clear that the woman and the woman alone share something with Adam that no other creature can lay claim to. That being the image of God. Eve alone is Adam's equal because they alone share the image of God. If she was made out of the ground like all the other creatures, then that point might have been lost. So you see why it's so important that she is made from Adam's side. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry has this famous quote on the significance of this, of Eve being made from a rib in Adam's side. Henry says that the woman is, quote, not made out of his head, to top him, not out of his feet, to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side, to be equal with him, under his arm, to be protected, near his heart, to be beloved. 
That's, that's a good way to put it. That's a good explanation for why she's created that way. Now, I know some people may have a hard time seeing this, seeing especially the equality between the man and the woman, but Adam doesn't. Adam saw it. When he woke up and he saw Eve, he didn't see a creature unequal to him, but one made for him, made of him to be a suitable partner. Listen to Adam's words in verse 23. You can just hear the relief in his voice when he finally sees Eve because he was getting a, a little bit worried that he couldn't find a helper fit for him among the animals. So look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam is celebrating the similarity and the equality that he now shares with this woman. Earlier, we noted how Adam is uh, identified in relation to the ground, Adama. But here, Adam identifies himself in relation to the woman. He uses a different Hebrew word for man. He uses the word ish. He say, he's saying, literally, she shall be called isha, that's woman, because she was taken out of ish. You see, another wordplay here. The language is conveying how perfect they are for each other. Now, church, I, I know this may sound fairly basic to you. It may sound like elementary truths, things that, that you already know. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God makes a man. He makes a corresponding pair we call woman. And like we said earlier, we see corresponding pairs all throughout creation. The male-female pairing sounds simple enough. But that's actually no longer the case today, is it? More and more people in our culture are pushing back against the male-female binary. They would argue that another man can be a suitable partner for a man. That another man can be a helper fit for him. Or they would reject the male-female binary altogether and claim that gender is just a social construct. They would say that it's actually oppressive to force people to have to, to choose between one of two categories, that you have to choose either between being a male or a female. Proponents of gender fluidity would claim that you can actually fluctuate back and forth between the two, or, or, or you could be neither. Now, friends, I, I know these are complex issues. Th these are sensitive issues. I'm sure these are issues you would rather avoid. You're just hoping that, that your non-Christian friends won't ask you what, you what you actually think about these things. But I hope you see how these issues are completely relevant to biblical truth, to that picture on, on the front of the box. I know it's hard to talk about these things. They very well might land us in trouble. But many of our neighbors fellow human beings created in the image of God are struggling with their sexuality. They are lost and confused. Now, I'm sure many would disagree with, with me saying that they're lost and confused. They would say, no, no, we found our answer. We're living our truth. But when you compare the lives that they're living and the relationships that they've forged to that Genesis 2 cover on the box, 
it's apparent that it doesn't match God's good design and God's good provision for all of mankind. And if we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, then is it love to remain silent when you see someone building a life that will not lead to the everlasting joy that God intends, but rather to perpetual frustration and eventual destruction? Love speaks. Love warns. Love does not condemn. Love will instead try to offer a positive, compelling picture of God's good design for sexuality in marriage. We need to love. That's how we ought to respond. And church, this is where we need to be so clear on what marriage is on what it's supposed to look like and what it's intended for, if we're going to engage the culture on these issues, then we need to realize that our best argument is not going to be a sermon. It's not going to be a book. It's not going to be a podcast. It's going to be our own marriages, our own examples. So let's consider our our third point, marriages, good purposes. Let's, let's understand its purposes so that we can live it out ourselves. Now, this is addressed for us in verse 24. Here in verse 24, the narrator takes an aside. He, he kind of steps out of the narrative for a moment to draw out a theological implication. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And notice that therefore, to start the verse, that signals you can't fully understand what marriage is without the background context in Genesis 1 and 2. You can't just pull this verse out and expect to understand marriage. You need the whole thing. So this means that every marriage is intended to serve the same purposes behind why God gave Eve to be married to Adam in the beginning. If you seek to fulfill those purposes in your own marriage, then you can experience and you can exemplify the goodness of God, the goodness intended from the beginning. Now, based on just Genesis 1 and 2, I can see three good purposes for marriage. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through each one. First, to address that not good state of aloneness, by binding you in a one flesh union with another. We touched on that a bit earlier. The first purpose is to address aloneness by binding you in a one flesh union. Second, to serve as the context wherein you can fulfill God's first command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. The context to fulfill that first command. And third, to function as a stage upon which you and your spouse can uniquely reflect God's glory as his image bearers. Marriage is to be a stage where you reflect his glory together as husband and wife. Okay, so let's consider all three. First, let's consider how marriage addresses our aloneness by establishing a one flesh union. Look back with me at verse 24. It describes marriage with this leaving and cleaving. A man leaves his father and mother and cleaves or hold fast to his wife. 
implying there a change of relationships, a change of loyalties. Prior to marriage, your closest relationship is with your parents, regardless if you feel close to them or not. Because we're not talking about how you feel towards your parents. We're just talking about God's original design. In his created order, you're born into a family, and your first loyalty is to your parents. You shall honor your father and your mother. But once married, that one flesh union between you and your spouse supplants the bond between parent and child. Your primary loyalty now shifts to your spouse. Now, that doesn't mean you abandon all other loyalties and and all ties with your parents. You know, in some cultures, in some families, the metaphorical umbilical cord remains quite strong. And that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as it doesn't strangle the marriage. That's the key. But the point here is that a one flesh union is formed. And from that moment forth, till death do you part, the Lord never sees you alone. If you're married, he always sees you in union with your spouse. In a profound sense, you are never alone. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you are going there and you are doing it in union with your spouse. That's how profound it is to be married, to be in a one flesh union with another. So again, I want to stress the importance for young couples who are contemplating marriage to seek wise counsel from friends and family and church leaders to really determine if you are compatible, if you are a suitable match, because you're going to be spending the rest of your lives together in the most personal, most intimate, most comprehensive relationship on earth, a one flesh union. It's one of the most important choices you'll ever make you want to choose well. And for those of us who are married, those of us who have already entered a one flesh union with another, we need to be reminded of the significance of that choice we made. We can get so busy with life and with work and with kids that we begin to lose sight of this profound purpose for why we got married in the first place. Sadly, it's possible to still experience that not good aloneness even in marriage. If that's the state of your marriage, well, then it's time to repent. That is, it's time to turn around and to make a change in your marriage, to reprioritize what's important in life, to rearrange your schedule, to to make time for your spouse. It's not good for you to be alone In marriage, God called you into marriage to address that very state of things. So this is the time. This is the time to make a change, to improve your marriage, to seek greater health in your marriage. Now this idea of becoming one flesh has many layers of meaning. And one layer of meaning here is to understand being one flesh in physical terms. So becoming one flesh with your spouse is is what we experience in the marriage bed through sexual intimacy. So what's stressed here is that second purpose in marriage 
That is, to serve as the context wherein you fulfill God's first command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. That means sex is a part of God's good created order. It is not a result of the fall. It didn't enter into the world after sin came. Notice in verse 25, the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. This is actually the only place in the Old Testament where nakedness is mentioned without reference to humiliation. There is no shame here because sex is a good gift from God, but it needs to be enjoyed in the right context, in a one flesh union between a husband and a wife. If you try to enjoy, try to enjoy it in any other context, you'll find that a good thing can have harmful effects. The right context for a fire is in the fireplace. You try to enjoy it anywhere else, and you risk burning down your entire house. Now, let's be clear. God did give the good gift of sex in marriage for the sake of pleasure that it brings to the couple, but let's not lose sight of that first command in Genesis 1 that God gave to mankind, which is, of course, to be fruitful and to multiply. So we're talking about the purpose of procreation. It's just as important as pleasure. The fact that God designed marriage and sex within it to normally have the potential to produce, produce offspring, babies that are completely helpless and need you to sacrifice what's good for you to serve what's good for them, that reveals that sex and marriage were never designed to help you serve the self. They were designed to be the very context where you learn how to serve the other. That's why, that's why children should never be viewed as an imposition on your lifestyle or as a restriction on your freedom. They should be viewed as what they are, good gifts from God. And every couple should be open to receiving God's gift if he so wills. Now, having said that, I, I, I want to stress that at the same time, we must not idolize childbearing and make it the ultimate purpose of marriage. Because those struggling with infertility are not experiencing marriage light. It, it, they're not experiencing a lesser form of marriage because they don't have children. No, their marriages are equally fulfilling because the ultimate purpose of marriage is not children. It's the glory of God. And that leads to our third good purpose for marriage. To function as a public stage upon which you and your spouse can uniquely reflect God's glory. Remember, the man and the woman were created to mirror the image of God, to reflect his glory to the rest of creation. Just think about how a husband and a wife in a one flesh union how they mirror God's image in a unique and profound way. Earlier we had said that God is never alone, that he eternally exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, is, that means that within the Godhead, there are three persons in one being. Or another way to say it, three persons 
perfectly bound in one union. Now, what is marriage? But two persons bound together in a one flesh union. It's clearly not an exact representation. You're only doing, dealing with two versus three. But on earth, on earth, it is the closest we've got. God created marriage to be the one human relationship on earth that most closely resembles his own triune existence. So the point is that marriage was never intended to be an end in itself. It was designed from the very beginning to be a signpost pointing to a greater reality beyond the couple. Marriage was meant to reflect the glory of God, and the Israelites, they knew that. They read Genesis 1 and 2. They knew that they were to get married for the glory of God. They knew that, 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 and so that's why they would give their sons and daughters over to marriage. But you know, for, uh, for, for, for thousands of years, they, they, they did get married, but they didn't know exactly what it was about God and his glory that was being reflected in their marriages. Marriage remained a mystery. That is until the Incarnation until the Son of God took on flesh and the people of God came to realize that their God is a trinity and that their marriages are intended to reflect this mysterious aspect of God's very nature. What an honor. What a task. And then, and then the death and resurrection of the Son of God revealed that mystery even further. And so we read now in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the Apostle Paul reflecting on the death and resurrection of Christ. And after quoting Genesis 2, 24 in reference to marriage, Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. In other words, it's a picture of the gospel. You have Jesus in all of his goodness and holiness, and then you have us in all of our sin and evil. We couldn't be more different from each other. But when Jesus died for our sins, and when we put all of our hope and our trust in him, we are united with Christ in perfect oneness. And now, every married couple has the chance to treat their marriage as a public stage where they can reenact the drama of the gospel, giving glory to the God of the gospel. Sure, I know your spouse is different from you, and those differences can sometimes get on your nerve, and you just wish they could be more like you, but it's actually because you are so different when you experience and enjoy oneness in your marriage, you're actually giving testimony to the gospel of Christ and the church. So, friends, live out your marriage as a public stage for all to see. Live out your marriage for people to see. Not, not your perfection, because as we said earlier, you'll never achieve a perfect marriage but you can strive for and you can enjoy a healthy one. 
one that points people to a reality and to a relationship greater than just the two of you, one that offers a dim but true reflection of God's glorious nature and his glorious gospel. Let's do that. For the sake of those who are on the verge of giving up on their marriages, or for the sake of those who currently have no interest in marriage, let's hold up the Genesis 2 box of what marriage really looks like, enhanced now to greater clarity by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may you do that through our lives, through our marriages. Use the union that you formed between us and our spouse that our lives together may give you so much glory and give a faithful testimony to your very nature and to your very gospel. Oh Lord, I pray for any marriages here that are needing your grace, that are needing your healing. May you do that. May you work in their hearts so that they may be able to fulfill this awesome privilege and opportunity to reflect you in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.